This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Richard, Tom and myself have been up to on Space Launch Day, Monday, February the 27th, which includes speaking to Dimitri Atri, who is a research scientist at the New York Abu Dhabi Centre for Space Science. It is, of course, liftoff at Cape Carnival this morning, as well as watching the astronauts climb into the Dragon capsule. We've managed to tear our eyes away long enough to have a look at Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders to take a look at projections for the UAE economy with Emirates NBD. To speak to an entrepreneur who wants to handle urban rain flooding by building sponge cities, he is Chandra Dake of the Dake Group, and to have a look at a new fund for tech coming out of Hub 71. The Dragon. This is something else. I've got two screens going. I'm on NASA Live um, and I'm watching the uh, Dubai broadcast of it as well uh, to watch the guys getting into the Dragon capsule. They're checking out their suits to make every sure every single bit is as it should be. Um, I guess, I don't know, airtight, whatever else, every zipper zip, every seam is perfect. It's like you've got... A wardrobe crew of eight guys uh, dressed entirely in black, including hoods, making sure that every centimetre looks as it should. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? Because they're, they're literally being strapped in now. They're not taking off for another two and a half hours. So you're going to be strapped into your seat for two and a half hours. But they'll be going through all the, the procedures of to, for leading up to liftoff, as in they'll be going through protocol now, not just people checking them, but them as individuals of what they will need to be doing once liftoff has actually happened, fingers crossed. Yeah, Sultan Al-Aidi is going into the pod. Is it shallow to say these are great boots? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, you know, a fashion statement as they as they get ready to take off. Nothing there is not a lot of room in here, is there? Uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the dragon capsule. In the dragon capsule. No, it's, it's cosy, isn't it? It's cosy. But they are going to get to know each other very, very well, this, this crew, over the course of the next it's six like months. It's like being strapped into an amusement park ride. If you've ever taken, what's the one at Ferrari World we popped Malcolm on, where you're kind of sitting in a seat and you've got the over-the-shoulder harnesses. Is it where there's flying aces or there's the, the Ferrari one? Those, those are the two quick yeah. ones. But, I mean, he... He, <laughs> he didn't love it. <laughs> he didn't love it, no. <laughs> this is brilliant. They're having knee pads strapped on them as well. I want to know what's going on. That's painful. Uh, right, let's turn our attention to some of the big stories. Let's start internationally. Warren Buffett making news over the weekend. Richard Dean? His company, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, released earnings for the full year. And depending on which number you read, they either lost $23 billion or made $30 billion. Uh, so... Um, the, the net profit figure is a loss of $23 billion, and that is because stock markets fell. And because Berkshire Hathaway is an investment company, they have to report earnings. Uh, it, it's an accounting phenomenon mm. based on stock price declines. So if the, stock price, the, the shares of the companies in their portfolio, like Apple and Coca-Cola, decline, they have to mark them down, and therefore they report an accounting loss of $23 billion. Warren Buffett says this is 100% misleading, so what he prefers to focus on is operating profit. On that metric, they made $30.8 billion. So the underlying companies, Apple, 
Coca-Cola, their insurance company, did really, really well. The, the railroad company, uh, $30.8 $30. billion operating profit. It's just that share prices declined. He says his problem is that he's got, and this is his word, a boatload of cash. Technical terms. <laughs> we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know how to spend it. Um, nope. they, they, they've bought a couple of companies lately, but when you generate that much cash, then it's difficult to spend it. So what he has been buying, and it's quite controversial, is his own shares. He's been buying back shares of Berkshire Hathaway. Some people criticise that. There are some people who just philosophically don't believe in share buybacks. They think if you buy your own shares, you're not trying hard enough. What you should be doing is investing. Joe in Biden's capacity. not a fan of share buybacks either, is he? I, I don't know that, but I, I can well believe it. Um, but yeah, a lot of people do it. Apple are doing it at the moment as well. They just generate so much cash. It's a way of giving cash back to shareholders. Yeah, but it's, all, and it's a way of shoring yourself up against um, any sort of takeover activity, and I give you standard chartered. So it's, it's what he's doing. He wants he, a tax, Biden. He wants to quadruple the tax on buybacks. Well, Warren Buffett is defending them. This is him speaking not over the weekend. He hasn't spoken publicly this weekend with the numbers came out, but this is a quote from the archives from Warren Buffett defending the very concept of share buybacks. We will only buy Berkshire if we think that the shareholder the next day is, or that same day, is wealthier after we've bought the stock. In other words, we've bought it for a shade less, or maybe a lot less, but, but at least a shade less than it's actually worth. And we don't set out to buy any given amount. We set out to buy stock at prices below intrinsic value per share. He also made some bullish comments about the United States economy. He says, I have been alive for a third of the history of the United States, <laughs> which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. And he says it has its ups and downs, uh, but by and large, it is uh, something that I am betting on. He said um, the American economy would have done very well without Berkshire Hathaway. The same cannot be said about the reverse. Berkshire Hathaway would not have done well without the strength and resilience of the American economy. 92 years old. Uh, his business partner, Charlie Munger, 99 years old. Uh, we will keep an eye on what's uh, happening with Warren Buffett and uh, the latest findings there. We're also keeping an eye on uh, our launch time, uh, the launch pad being prepared as well. Serena Kelly and the ERN news team all over this one for us. Oh, most definitely. So the UAE preparing to make history today. Emirati astronaut Sultan Al-Niyadi preparing for today's launch. The longest Arab mission to space, a six-month stint aboard the International Space Station. So liftoff scheduled 10.45 a.m. UAE time uh, from Launch Complex 39A at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in the United States. It is live streaming right now. We have the link available on the Air and News Center website if you want to take a look. Uh, but so many people have been sending their best wishes to Sultan Al-Niadi. There's been a viral video of the UAE president of the UAE, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan, speaking with Sultan. Uh, you also had Sultan's predecessor, Haza al-Mansouri, because, of course, if we remember back in 2019, he became the first Emirati in space where he did eight days aboard the International Space Station. So Haza tweeted, Sultan, this time you will be carrying the UAE's flag to the International Space Station. Be assured that we are here supporting you in all the milestones of this mission. Have a great journey up there. So what happens now? So leading up to the launch, Director General of the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center, Salam Al-Mari, he's been speaking to Georgia Tolley from the agenda. 
They do a last call to the family from the tower itself, and then they go one by one up there to board the capsule. And then, of course, they do an ingress, so getting into the capsule, and they connect their suits to the capsule. That whole process takes about two hours. And then from there, they're about two, two and a half hours, sometimes three hours in the Dragon capsule waiting for launch. So you can hear that full interview from 10 a.m. this morning. But as Brandy was describing, they've been strapped in uh, to the Dragon capsule. Uh, So alongside Sultan, as the UAE mission specialist, you have NASA Commander Steve Bowen, uh, NASA pilot Woody Holberg, and Roscosmos mission specialist Andre Fedeyev. So NASA Commander Steve Bowen was asked recently what it was like training with Sultan and the exchange of different cultures. I met Sultan and Hazar back in Star City when I was training for a Soyuz launch in uh, 2018. I mean, I've always been impressed with the individuals and then the culture they bring to it as well. I'm incredibly excited to to learn new cultures as I, you know, when I first started training with the Russians 20 years ago, it's just exciting to me to see that and see what people bring to the conversations and uh, looking forward to operating with Sultan on orbit and uh, having the opportunity to experience actually through everybody's eyes. That's, it's just so cool to watch people on orbit working. Now, commentating through the live um, broadcast right now, we managed to find out what Sultan's playlist for the journey was. So he's got Don't Stop Believing uh, by Journey, um, Push It to the Limit by Paul Ingleman, and this track as well. So I think as in groups of the two, they managed to pick um, select songs for the for the journey to the International Space Station. Um, but if we do have time, finally, uh, Sultan will be carrying out 19 science experiments assigned to him by several UAE universities. He went into detail about one he's looking forward to running. Seeing the heart tissue beating in, in space. So this is something uh, like a cutting edge technology that... One day we can, when we start 3D printing organs, this is really important to see how the structure is built in microgravity. So this can give us a a really good insight how these tissues are built. So launch time, 10.45 a.m. UAE time. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Speaking of science, we have the Envirotech company Drake Group in the studio with us this morning. They say that they've come up with a way to combat the issues created by heavy rain in urban areas. They want to build sponge cities. Very pleased to be joined by Chandra Jake, who is the executive chairman and the group CEO of Dake Group. Chandra, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Brandy. Thanks for inviting us here. So tell me, what is a sponge city? Uh, sponge city is a unique phenomena of uh, integrating blue and green as well as gray infrastructure, which is water uh, plants as well as the recycling of water integrated into a um, infrastructure environment and reusing the water effectively. Every drop of water is given importance so that we can conserve it and reuse it. Okay, well we've seen the demonstration but to describe for, for people um, radio and, and television what are you actually talking about building from an infrastructure point of view? What is it and how does it work? 
Um, like I've indicated about bringing in the blue, uh, I mean, the, with the rapid urbanization, we have reduced the waterways. That has causing us the flooding, seeing the road puddle, puddles on the road. What we have created with our innovations, we can harvest every drop of water. Imagine a road when the rain falls in and every drop is harvested and so that we can reuse that water, not just discarding into drainage. So that's what we were able to create, a road infrastructure which can harvest every drop of water. Right, and it's special materials that make that happen, isn't it? Talk to me about that. Yeah, we created this material which is manufactured from desert. So literally now we can see desert giving a solution for the problems of the desert. This material is especially a manufactured material which harvests every drop of water while not allowing any debris or dust getting into the waterways. So you are solving two problems. One is collecting the water cleanly and the second is not uh, going, sending it into the wastewater treatment plants. And technically made, as you say, out of sand? Yes, desert sand specifically. Why desert sand? What's special about this? Right now, there is no literal commercial or economical use for a desert sand. This um, technology we created is an innovation of using an unusable desert sand into a commercial application and for solving a bigger problem and reducing the burden on asphalt. Okay. Which and the water goes goes through this into special drainage facilities, hence the, the sponge city. Yes. Like a sponge absorbs every drop of water at, in a home, similarly, every drop of water which falls on this surface is absorbed so that you can reuse that water. Okay, so what's the, the big idea? What's the plan? Is it to pave whole cities with this material? Retrofitting a city infrastructure is is literally a very long cycle. But obviously, in the design, we work with the master planners of the cities and retrofit only a few sections where where the water is accumulated so that you can get this infrastructure into an existing uh, city. And the beauty about this technology is we can get a decentralized drainage system. So we don't have to build a centralized drainage system like any other country, which suits our country. What kind of money are we talking about for this? Um, it will be uh, slightly uh, cheaper than the concrete infrastructure, this technology-wise, retrofitting as well. But the amount of water it saves, it creates a new water source. Apart from solving the flooding issues, it solves quite a lot of, I mean, creates a new water source compared to our desalination water. And how fresh can that water source be? I mean, could it be potable? Could you drink it? In principle, technically, yes. But obviously, like any other uh, apprehensions one has, a um, little bit of a uh, treatment is required for drinking. But generally, for the irrigation as well as plants and cleaning of the roads, this water can be immediately used. Moreover, rainwater is one of the cleanest form of water available to the mankind. And if you are able to... Uh, collect it at a clean way, we can reuse that water. And then reusing of that water responsibly is also our technology part of the sponge city. That is, we save about 80% in plantation. So where are you in the uh, sort of grand stream of life, no pun intended, um, in making sponge cities a reality? This sponge city is no longer a concept. Obviously, I mean, the inventor, Mr. Chen Ji, is from uh, China. 
Uh, with this innovation, China has already embarked on a couple of cities, converting the cities into sponge. Uh, span cities, UAE government, uh, predominantly the leadership is very, very proactive and supportive of the sustainability. That, that, that's one of the reasons why this year is declared as a year of sustainability. So we are now embarking on few of the pilots to address some of the uh, flooding issues we are seeing and rapid, fi- rapid rains we are seeing in the region. Are you doing that with the government here? Yes, we are working with a couple of ministries and municipalities we would like to work with to address some of these problems. And we are in the next couple of months, we are embarking on few pilots in the region. Where will those pilots be? Those are specific details, not yet public. But what kind of time scale then are we talking about for these pilots? We intend to uh, for these to be done before the COP28 because the, the COP28 is a year of solutions. So this is one of a critical solutions towards the water challenges and we should be doing a couple of pilots before the next rain hits. And the pilots will be in the UAE? Yes. It will be in the UAE and UAE being the leader of the region showcasing the innovations we, we look forward to it. What scale are we talking about for these pilots? The water problems what we're seeing are are at an enormous scale. But in terms of pilots, we will be doing multiple pilots across the region to see the suitability of it. And these uh, will address the low-lying areas, which which is critical water water ponds as of now. I mean, are we talking paving one street? Are we talking about just doing a few square metres? Um, across the region, we would like to do at least like few kilometers of uh, addressing the water puddles. We take few sections across the country to see some of these areas wherever there is more puddles happening to address them. This will not be few square meters, but it will be a larger area of an industrial scale pilot. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Chandra Dake is the executive chairman and the group CEO of Dake Group. They're the guys putting together breathable sand into paving stones and roadside uh, infrastructure in order to create sponge cities. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Brandy. Thank you, Dubai. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast, where we are talking space travel. Our spaceman is Sultan al Nayadi. He is blasting off in just a couple of hours' time. We're watching on TV the tearful goodbyes to his family because he's not going to see them for about half a year or so. Let's get some more detail on the mission itself. Demetra Atri, Professor Demetra Atri, is a research scientist at New York University Abu Dhabi Center for Space Science and joins us now live from the nation's capital. Professor Demetra, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks very much indeed. Much excitement about this mission. But if we leave aside the emotion and the national pride, in terms of science, why is this mission happening? Yeah, so as you know, uh, human space flight was very popular during the Apollo era and then uh, public interest and also uh, the type of science they do uh, diminished over time. But now, once again, uh, human space flight is gaining momentum uh, because now space agencies are planning for long-duration missions uh, to the moon. People are thinking about establishing human bases on the moon and also seriously thinking about 
flights to Mars, maybe establishing a human base on Mars. And what kind of, of what kind of research are they going to be doing? Looking at comments from Sultan himself, he says, we will be doing lots of cool stuff, which is a nice mm-hmm. way of putting it. He says, we are subjects ourselves. Reports about 250 experiments, partly on the humans, but partly on the, the atmosphere that they're going to be experiencing. What are the biggies? What are the big scientific experiments that you as a researcher are excited mm-hmm. about? Yeah, so one of the most important things is, you know, how does human body behave in space under microgravity, under enhanced exposure to radiation in long-term space missions? So this space mission is six months long. Going to Mars takes six to seven months, so it's a perfect proxy for that. So understanding how does human body um, behave in the effect of microgravity under radiation, how does human immune system behave, what happens to the heart, and so on. So there are a number of experiments uh, on board the International Space Station, uh, they are going to test the flammability of uh, materials. Uh, you know, in future, we don't want uh, you know spacecraft catching fire. So, what type of materials would be ideal to carry? Then there are experiments to uh, study the immune immune system in great detail. Uh, now there is technology where you can grow human tissues on chips, uh, which grow really rapidly and change very rapidly in space. So it is a great, you know, biomedical experiment. Uh, they'll be studying heart cells, heart tissues, and you know, heart tissue actually beats. So that is going to be very exciting. And uh, f- for uh, an astrobiology point of view. Uh, there are microbes outside the spacecraft. So when you know astronauts are there for long periods of time, they carry microbes with them. Some of them might uh, go out. They stick to the walls of the spacecraft. So they're going to go out. They're going to take those samples and study them uh, so that we can understand you know, how microbes grow in such extreme environments in space. You know, they're outside the spacecraft, so extremely cold environment. They are exposed to solar UV radiation and so on. So that is going to be very exciting. Astrobiology, that's a good bit of jargon. I'm going to use that one today in general conversation. <laughs> Finally, before we let we go, we, before we let you go, Professor, we are the business breakfast, so we've got to ask about the economics of this. Those are the benefits, but what about the costs? The National mm-hmm. reporting that the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center was able to secure a mission through the US, U, United States-based company Axiom Space, which is a company that arranges private trips to space. What does a mission like this cost? How, how can we quantify that? Uh, so I don't know the exact cost of the mission, but uh, it is, you know, nothing compared to the science output and the money it gives back to the society. So there was a study done at NASA to look at how, what is the economic impact of uh, such space flights. And the estimate was something like uh, a factor of one to 25. So every dollar spent in space, you get $25 in return. So all these technologies, uh, all the new research that I'm talking about that will happen in microgravity, uh, they are going to help us here on Earth. And uh, UAE's long-term goal is to have you know STEM-based economy here, st- science, technology, engineering, and medicine. So all this research will then 
can be implemented here in the UAE, growing, you know, universities, scientific research, uh, private companies uh, who will lead in this sector. So I think uh, the economic output is going to be great and such missions are, you know, just uh, a stimulant to accelerate that growth. Professor Demetra Atri, research scientist at New York University, Abu Dhabi, at their Centre for Space Science. Appreciate your time today. How many minutes are we to blast off? Do we know? 10.45, so just shy of three hours. Almost on the dot. (laughs) Happy days. I'm looking at the cost of these things. So Axiom is a private company in the United States that arranges trips to space. Now, we don't have a price for this mission. This is a six-month mission, but it was organised through Axiom. Uh, The national newspaper is reporting. I've got a headline from a year ago. Axiom names the first private crew paying $55 million for a trip to the International Space Station. Now, this was a crew of um, an American real estate investor, a Canadian investor, and a former Israeli Air Force pilot. They paid $55 million each to go with SpaceX to the International Space Station and spend eight days there and then return this is what axiom space does they're like booking.com <laughs> but for the international space station we well, were I'm... complaining about the price of the ibis hotel on <laughs> shakeside road at 1700 dirhams this is more i'm watching the convoy actually in the dark flashing lights it's all full drama uh, making their uh, way to the launch site. Yeah, uh, we'll keep an eye on that one for you. And of course, uh, launch time. Uh, we, we understand the launch is a go. That's a go, okay? Uh, and we understand that ten forty-five. Who gets to decide, by the way? Who's the person who actually decides? Yeah, we're pushing. We the, we're go. pushing the button because it's it's down to the absolute last second, isn't it? That everything, all the science, the engineering, the conditions, the weather, everything is lined up. Who gets to make the final Elon. call? It's his, it's his ship, isn't it? I don't think it would be Elon. No. Was it Le- Lady Penelope and Thunderbirds? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Thunderbirds are go. Thunderbirds are go, that's for sure. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. So a good step conference last week concluded. Uh, one of the main partners down there, in fact, the main partner of the Star Trek, was Hub71, who took advantage uh, of all things step to announce a new uh, initiative from Hub71. Hub71 themselves, a global ecosystem, and the destination of choice for tech companies, startups and investors looking to capitalise on growth of opportunities in one of the world's fastest growing economies uh, and they've now launched their hub 71 plus digital assets to explain all this uh, in some detail absolute pleasure to welcome into the studio head of strategy and product at hub 71 uh, peter abu hashem peter thanks very much indeed for your time this morning thank you for having me tom great to have you here um a big week then for all the team at hub 71 at step last week yeah, I think we've been quite busy, not just last week, the last three, four years <laughs> since we launched. <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the, the ecosystem, I love this quote that you've given to the, 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 um, the, the National on this one. So just gave a little overhead there of Hub 71 and that, what that's trying to achieve down in Abu Dhabi. Uh, you said, just like we built a global tech Easter ecosystem, we want to start creating sub-hubs for, uh, to focus on specific sectors. So tell me about this latest sub-hub, if you can. Yeah. I think it's quite important to just give a bit of background on our thinking before building these sub-hubs. In 2019, we've been mandated by the Abu Dhabi government to build that global tech ecosystem out of Abu Dhabi. Mm. Um, When we look at ecosystems and specifically tech, the startups are always at the center of it. So in three, four years, we've built 
a beautiful physical space with more than 200 startups um, re- that generated more than a billion dollars in uh, funding and more than $800 million in revenue. Um, so we built that tech ecosystem in a very short period of time, three to four years. And then we paused last year and said, we have a good ecosystem that's operating quite well. How do we further scale it? How do we make sure that as we bring these companies into Abu Dhabi, as we grow local companies from Abu Dhabi, mm. we create the next billion dollar companies? Um, and the answer was focus. We need to focus on the strength of Abu Dhabi. Um, we need to focus on the future trends that are coming up. So we looked at specific sectors um, that Abu Dhabi is quite strong in. Um, and the first one that we selected was under FinTech theme, uh, mm-hmm. digital assets. Um, the focus here was we built a generic tech ecosystem that's work- working quite well. Let's create the sub hub. Let's create the sub ecosystem, which is Hub 71 Plus that came to life. Um, and if you look at the sectors we chose, and I, uh, the first one was digital assets, mm. you look at, you see that they're heavily regulated. And so the first step we did was we worked with Abu Dhabi Global Markets, ADGM, um, which is one of the world's leading regulators when it comes to digital assets because we want to de-risk this new technology. We want to make sure that we give reassurance to investors, to anyone who's working with the companies that we build and that we bring in that there's the stamp of the regulator on these uh, companies. Um, the sec- second step that we did is we went to the largest bank in the UAE, first Abu Dhabi Bank, yeah. FAB, and said, this industry is disrupting financial services. We need the bank to tell us how do you want this industry to be disrupted and what are the use cases that Abu Dhabi needs to be focusing on. So if you look at the two main anchor partners that we have, the regulator and the largest financial institution, this gives reassurance to investors, gives reassurance to customers that the companies we're bringing in um, are the right companies and are the dearest companies. It also gives a faster access to these companies. I can get my regulations quite fast. I can access the market through the largest bank. And then the other partnerships that we brought on board are the more technical Web3 partnerships like the blockchains, like the exchanges, like the very dedicated Web3 funds so that we bring in a company, de-risk it, make sure it's regulated, make sure it has access to the largest bank, and then has access to all the technical support that it needs, the funding that it needs, uh, the right talent that it needs, and then from there you can build the next billion dollar company. So with the the help of Fab, who you mentioned there, uh, and the other partners that you've brought on board, is it those entities along with you that will uh, highlight and select the startups and the entrepreneurs, or can they come to you? Exactly. So I think it's good as well to look at how we built the previous um, ecosystem. We built it in an inorganic way. We brought in the startups into Abu Dhabi or grew them from Abu Dhabi and then built an ecosystem around them. And when we look at ecosystem, it's four key themes that we look at. Access to market and customers, access to funding, access to talent and access to regulators. So the first step was bring the startups, build these four pillars. Now with the focused ecosystems or these sub hubs that we call Hub 71 Plus, we're doing it the other way around. We're building these four pillars, so bringing in the funding arms, bringing in the customers, bringing in the talent and the right technical expertise, bringing in the regulator, and then opening up a funnel of startups. So you'd notice that we brought in these partnerships first, and this is not the full uh, ecosystem that's there, that's just the starting point. And then at the launch of Hub 71 Plus a few weeks ago, we opened the funnel for startups to apply and come into Abu Dhabi, Mm. so that you already have 50, 60% of what you need as an ecosystem, but then we're still working hard to keep growing that ecosystem because currently the funds that we have offer more than $2 billion in funding for these startups. We have one of the largest banks, but we need more institutions, more corporations. We have the regulator, we have some exchanges, blockchains, 
but this is not enough. We need to keep building that ecosystem. And to summarize, Hub 71 Plus is not just focusing on startups, it's focusing on the partners as yeah. well. We're ecosystem builders. We're not just a startup program. Our role is to position Abu Dhabi on the global map as a tech hub, and that doesn't just work with startups alone. The partners, t- partners themselves need to come in and disrupt. The regulator needs to disrupt. And then the startups will come in and leverage these partners to grow new technologies. I've got just under one minute left, uh, Peter, just very quickly in terms of Web3 companies. Obviously, we're seeing growth of Web3 companies in Abu Dhabi across the UAE. Are we also seeing Web3 companies come to the UAE now to take part, to take advantage of the system? I think not just Web3 companies. We see a huge shift in companies coming in from the East, from the West, from uh, Africa as well. Um, coming into Abu Dhabi, we've, we see that Abu Dhabi is now on the global map. Um, specifically, Web3 companies are coming in because they're heavily reliant on regulations. Mm-hmm. And ADGM has been quite advanced. They've had the regulations around digital assets since 2018. Um, so when Web3 companies are looking at which is the next uh, capital for me, Abu Dhabi has always been on the map. And I think now Abu Dhabi should be the capital of the world when it comes to Web3 and digital assets. Uh, Peter, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for joining us uh, nice and early this morning. Peter Abu Hashem is the Head of Strategy and Product at Hub71. Thank you again for joining thank us. Thank you, Tom. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.